Hi, I'm Lauren Hansen, multimedia editor at theweek.com, and today I'd like to share some fun and interesting facts that I learned while reading the internet this week. There may be nothing more definitive in a young person's life than losing your virginity. Cher, you're a virgin? God, you say that it's a bad thing. Besides, the PC term is hymenally challenged. I am just not interested in doing it until I find the right person. You see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet. As Cher suggests in the movie Clueless, losing your virginity is a matter of choice. Of course, environmental factors do play into it, not to mention peer pressure and parenting styles. But now, researchers believe that the age at which you lose your virginity is, to a degree, written in your DNA. In the study, researchers found 38 sections of DNA that correlated with the age at which people first have sex. Within those 38 sections are genomes that play a role in a bunch of things, like behavior and personality traits. Researchers pointed out gene variants linked to risk-taking behavior and irritability. But gene variants also played a role in things like signaling the start of puberty. But how much really do these 38 sections of DNA influence our sex lives? Compared to other genes, not a whole lot. You get a lot of your physical traits from genes. Your height, for example, is heavily influenced by your DNA, up to 80%. The rest is up to your environment and nutrition and that kind of stuff. But as for that virgin gene, the likelihood that you'll have sex relatively early or wait to start is 25% genetic influence. In other words, losing your virginity is about one quarter nature and three quarters nurture. If animated movies are to be believed, bugs and bees have complex feelings and emotions, just like ours. You're a bee! Yeah, yeah. I am a bee, and, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but oh. they were all trying to kill me, uh -huh. and if it wasn't for you, oh. I mean, I, I had to thank you. It's just, it's the way I was raised. In reality, of course, that's not the case. Insects are really just living creatures that don't think of or for themselves. They're basically driven by instincts and outside stimulus. But a whole new body of research suggests that that's not entirely true. Bees and other insects have what can be described as the beginning of consciousness. Now, they're not having deep thoughts or anything, but insects have the ability to experience the world from a single point of view. Now, for one, they have an ego. I got a big ego, ha, ha, ha. Oh, such a big ego. Uh, uh, uh. An insect's ego is much more rudimentary than Kanye's, but it does allow the bug to have the ability to act on certain environmental cues and ignore others. The bug selectively pays attention to what is most relevant to it at the moment. Ergo, it has ego. Insects also have a brain system that is actually similar to humans. At least one part of it is. Humans and other vertebrates have an area of the brain called the midbrain. The midbrain allows us to be aware, to have a basic subjective experience. And insect brains reveal a central nervous system that researchers believe performs the same function as the midbrain. It allows them to be aware, to have the basic, super rudimentary subjective experience. 
It's not like a bee is experiencing this rich and detailed life, but scientists say it does in fact feel like something to be a bee. Now, suggesting or proving that insects have some level of consciousness is controversial, but this study is also really helpful in the real world. This kind of information that tiny insect brains provide rudiments of consciousness could help in the development of drones and other artificial intelligence. Laughter, as I'm sure you've experienced, is a social phenomenon. You're 30 times more likely to laugh in a group than you are when you're alone. But scientists have identified an evolutionary factor as well. Laughing was key to survival. Scientists have been trying to get to the bottom of laughter's function as a form of communication, and they noticed some interesting things. For one, laughter is spontaneous. It emerges in the first few months of life. And laughing isn't just a human experience. Apes have a similar form of laughing too. Here's a baby bonobo being tickled. <laughs> laughing also stretches way, way back. Scientists have been able to trace the evolutionary origins of human laughter to between 10 million and 16 million years ago. Researchers theorized that laughter evolved from labored breathing during play, like tickling between two young mammals. This shared expression likely strengthened the playing mammals' positive bonds so that they played more and became closer. This first emergence of laughing vocalization was completely tied to how we felt. Just like being sad causes crying and being angry causes a kind of roar, playing caused laughter. It was an involuntary response. But as our brains grew more complex, we were soon able to vocalize voluntarily without necessarily experiencing something positive or negative, which led to a clever new tool, mimicry. Early humans could now artificially quicken and expand social bonds and increase survival by mimicking laughing. Scientists actually see this in adult chimps today. Adult chimps produce an imitation laugh in response to the spontaneous laugh of others. We humans probably do it all the time. In fact, it's a trait that develops during childhood. But it is acoustically distinct from the spontaneous kind. Spontaneous laughter is higher pitched and shorter than the imitation laugh. And researchers found that strangers listening in can tell when someone is genuinely laughing or just faking it. Genuine laughter remains a signal for honesty. And while we've evolved to some degree to decipher the real from the fake, that canned laughter isn't all that bad and is still sometimes necessary to create those social bonds. <laughs> we are laughing. <laughs> and we are very good friends. <laughs> good buddies sharing a special moment. <laughs> Don't say anything wrong. Just let it happen. <laughs> laughing and enjoying our friendship. And someday we'll look back on this with much fondness. And finally, this week, I learned what most people in the music world already knew. Freddie Mercury had an unparalleled singing voice. Really, this is now scientifically proven. A team of researchers dedicated themselves to studying the Queen frontman's unique voice.
Now, of course, Freddie Mercury died two decades ago, but the scientists had other things at their disposal. They studied many interviews of Mercury, and they also brought in a test subject who was to imitate Mercury's voice. With video recording, they studied his larynx. And they found a few interesting things. Despite being a tenor, Mercury was actually a baritone and was just talented enough to jump out of his bass range. His vocal cords also vibrated faster than other people's, even rivaling famous opera singer Luciano Pavarotti. Scientists also figured out how Mercury was able to modulate his voice to jump so effortlessly from rough and gravelly to angelically smooth. Mercury was likely able to employ something called subharmonics, which is really, really rare. It's when the ventricular folds vibrate along with the vocal folds. Throat singers can do it. But Mercury had to be one of the few known rock vocalists with the talent, proving once and for all there was no one like him. Can somebody find Somebody, somebody love. Okay, let's do it. And that does it for this week's episode of This Week I Learned. If you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned here, you can go to theweek.com slash audio. And if you'd like to listen to more from this series or any of the week's podcasts, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to encourage you to rate our podcasts on iTunes. I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>